I'd like to introduce Mr. Justin Sinclair. Justin is a pharmacognosist and a research fellow at the National Institute of Complementary Medicine, which is housed at Western Sydney University, where he heads up the Australian Medicinal Cannabis Research and Education Collaboration. He also leads the Scientific Advisory Board for the Medicinal Cannabis Patient-Centred Charity, United in Compassion, founded by Lucy and Anne Haslam in 2014. After completing his Masters of Herbal Medicines at the Faculty of Pharmacy at Sydney University in 2004, Justin has been lecturing on the topics of phytochemistry, botany, pathophysiology, integrated pharmacology, and anatomy and physiology and has worked as a consultant to the industry since 2006. He has published on the topics of pain management, cannabis and the endocannabinoid system, and the herb-drug interactions in peer-reviewed publications, and has been studying the cannabis genus both in Australia and the USA for the last decade. Please welcome Mr. Justin Sinclair. Thanks very much, Rita. So good morning, everyone, and uh, thank you for that kind introduction. So one thing I just wanted to make uh, clear right from the get-go is recreational cannabis and medicinal cannabis are two very different plants. One is grown illicitly and in many cases poorly, utilizing all sorts of insecticides and fungicides or other growing agents such as hormones, whereas medicinal cannabis is grown to incredibly high quality standards and making it safer for medicinal use with a more standardized chemical profile uh, for reproducible therapeutic effects. We have to compare apples and apples within this debate. And one thing I must implore you to keep in mind is that most of the evidence for its perceived harm, increased risk of psychosis, toxicity, and dependence has all been based on recreational evidence in the vast majority of the literature. With that now being said, I've got a lot to cover today. Um, so we'll jump straight in. I'm going to take you uh, on a journey through the cannabis plant. We'll look at its botany at its morphology, its phytochemistry, and we'll finish up navigating some of the facts and fallacies surrounding the plant, which has led to where we are right now. So without further ado, we'll get started because no one wants to be the presenter that eats into morning tea time. <laughs> so in the interest of transparency, transparency, here's a list of my affiliations uh, and disclosure. Please note that I'm not paid nor have received payment for any from any medicinal cannabis cultivators or manufacturers either here in Australia or internationally. Furthermore, I've not received any remuneration for any of the public or private lectures that I've given on the topic of medicinal cannabis uh, to doctors, nurses, patients and carers or industry over the last three years. And all of my work is entirely pro bono. All right, so let's get started with the star of the show um, and begin with some botany. Now, the, cannaba the Cannabaceae family uh, is a relatively small family of flowering plants encompassing around 11 genera. Uh, and approximately 170 different species. Now, cannabis comes from the same family as another very useful herbal medicine, uh, Humulus lupulus, commonly known as hops, uh, which I'm sure many of you may be enjoying in a beer later on today. So also a very well-known hypnotic and sedative. Now, currently and for many years, we've believed that uh, there are largely two major uh, species within the cannabis genus that we use for medicinal uh, purposes. That's being cannabis sativa and cannabis indica. But the third that's listed up there, which is known as uh, cannabis ruderalis, um, is seen as phytochemically inferior. So we don't use it in medicine that much. But now with recent uh, genetic evidence that's coming to bear with new technology, um, basically it's a bit of a moot point because all of this interbreeding that's happened between various species anyway means that all of these hybrids and different varieties of, that have been produced, at which count we're currently up to 700, um, it is a moot point to be able to discuss what species it is. Uh, it's more important for us to actually describe and discuss the phytochemistry that is available so that we can ascertain what medical conditions it might be useful for. Now, as you notice for medicine, it says up there the uh, dried female uh, unfertilized inflorescence is used, what we call sensomia. Uh, and I'll talk more about this soon uh, as we go through and look at some of the pictures. So on this slide here, this is just representing the current present-day ranges of medicinal cannabis uh, around the world. So here you notice the um, new subspecies divisions that have been characterized down the bottom for the um, cannabis genus. So looking at either broadleaf or narrowleaf drug varieties, uh, looking at either indica or sativa dominant species. But the interesting thing that I want you to note when you look at that map is that wherever there are zones of capable supporting plant life, 
uh, cannabis is basically there. Second is that cannabis is um, on every major inhabited continent because our ancestors uh, took it with them wherever they went, such, such was its value and need. They needed it as a staple, not only uh, for medicine, but as a food, and revered it for its versatility and hardiness. So now let's have a look at some of the different morphological characteristics of the cannabis genus, what it looks like, uh, so you can see uh, yeah, what it looks like and, and what parts we utilize medicinally. So note here that both leaves look quite similar. They both share that classic tapered acuminate apex that you can see up the top, compound leaf structure and a serrated leaf margin. But the length, width and chemical characteristics are markedly different on these two different uh, plants. So whether broad or narrow leaf species or subspecies, both share medicinal and industrial applications. But did you know that the leaves are generally regarded uh, as a waste product uh, in cannabis cultivation? Although there's a lot of anecdotal evidence, particularly coming from Canada and the United States at the moment, um, about the juicing of the, of the leaves, which doesn't expose it to heat and actually releases a compound called THCA, which has been found to be quite useful as an anti-inflammatory agent. Now here on the left, uh, you can see the photo of a male cannabis plant. So the stamens are comprised of the filament and the uh, anthers, uh, which produces the pollen. So as you can see there in figure four, the old male cannabis plant produces a lot of pollen um, and generally um, can travel great distances on the wind. And so for that reason, much like Catholic school, we keep the males and the females separated. Um, males really are only useful for reproduction uh, for most of the time, and from the medicinal side of things, we want the unfertilized female plant. Because if she does get fertilized, the seeds will detract from its ability to produce a larger amount of phytochemicals that will negatively impact its potency. So as such, that standard for producing medicinal cannabis strains is to ensure that only unfertilized female plants, what we call sensomia, is cultivated and generally cuttings or clones are taken of those uh, unfertilized mother plants so that we can have an identical genetic makeup and assist in maintaining consistent quality of the phytochemicals required. So you'll notice what looks like a hazy whitish coating uh, on the female plant on the right. Now that's not a mold or a fungus but it's actually another morphological characteristic uh, of the plant known as trichomes. So on this slide, you can see two female ca uh, cannabis plants. On the left, you can see the feathery-looking female reproductive part known as the stigma. So that's what the pollen lands on from the male. Um, and that's what we need for fertilization to occur. So you can also see these glandular trichomes, uh, trico coming from the uh, root word for hair. Um, and this has been magnified on the right, uh, so it's easier to spot. Now, this is where a lot of the phytochemicals of interest, at least medicinally, are stored within the plant. Uh, mainly the cannabinoids and the terpenes, which we'll look at soon. So as the plant reaches maturity, or what we call senescence, the clear trichomes become a little bit more opaque and almost milky under magnification, showing the grower that the time to harvest is closely approaching. Now hashish, which you may have heard of, is a resinous extract uh, composed of just these glandular trichomes and represents obviously a very strong end product um, that's been utilized in ritual, ceremony, and medicine for humans for over 4,000 years. So it's essentially a purified cannabinoid and terpene substance, much less is required to be used as a medicine in comparison to just dried plant material. So here you can see in figure eight, the compressed glandular trichomes uh, forming the solid uh, brick there of hashish. So if you, want to, if you went and viewed this under a microscope, of course, this would just be a collection of compounded trichomes. Now, hashish is produced predominantly uh, in two ways, shaking or rubbing. Shaking requires the use of incredibly fine material uh, through which the raw cannabis product is bashed and sieved through uh, with just the trichomes coming through the netting. Whereas rubbed hashish is much easier to produce uh, and involves simply rubbing your hands on the uh, still live plant and collecting this. So after about 20 minutes of vigorous collection and rubbing, the hands become coated in that sticky resin, uh, which is effectively pure hash. So this is then scraped off with a knife and rolled into balls or pressed into forms. So this is used predominantly in the Himalayas and in places like Jamaica, uh, the method on the right, rubbing, uh, where it's known as charis. Now in figure 10 there, up in the left, you can see a finished trimmed bud uh, covered in glandular trichomes. Now this specific strain has the name Bubba Kush, 
because uh, it pays homage to its ancestry being a broadleaf drug variety coming from the Hindu Kush region of Afghanistan, famous for being a very rich uh, THC producing plant. Figure 11 is another example uh, of another rich strain known as Afghani Kush, uh, another vari a variety very useful for pain and sedation. Um, and whilst we're, they're both Kushes, they both come from the same lineage, what's interesting is that you'll see that phenotypically how they look is very, very different, even though their chemistry uh, is actually uh, quite similar. Now here's something that many of you might not know and it's quite unique about cannabis. Um, cannabis sativa and cannabis indica are both known to be affected by what's known as photoperiodism, so which is defined as the de developmental response or the physiological reaction of a plant to the relative length of the daylight cycle. So most normal plants will go into flower in the warmer spring and summer months as we can see on our walks around uh, the suburbs at the no moment, but not cannabis. cannabis Basically, during spring and summer months, where the sunlight exposure is around 15 to 18 hours per day, um, and that's obviously depending on where you are geographically, but these plants undertake vegetative growth. All they're interested in is putting out a large amount of leaves, kind of like photovoltaic receptors, to maximize the growth of their leaf and production of carbohydrate. Now, this is obviously important for photosynthesis and, and making energy for the plant. So there's another cannabis species which we talked about earlier called Cannabis ruderalis, and that's known as an auto-flowering variety. So it, uh, it's genetically uh, going to go to flower after a certain predetermined period of time, whereas we can keep these uh, sativa and indicas uh, indefinitely in a vegetative state if we keep their sunlight at about 15 to 18 hours. So here you can see on this slide uh, vegetative growth pattern, but this time with obviously much younger plants and under lighting conditions. So various spectrums of what we call photosynthetic <coughs> photon flux density uh, lighting, so things like metal halide and um, high pressure sodium and fluorescent lights are used. Um, and as long as that higher lighting uh, time frame, the duration of 15 to 18 hours is kept, you'll keep them in that state uh, for quite some time. But as the sunlight starts to wane and reduce in length, uh, such as autumn and winter, uh, dropping down to between 10 to 12 hours the, in the day, the start of the process of flowering will begin, which is the main morphological uh, structure of interest for us medicinally. So this is why cannabis is suited to both indoor and outdoor growing, uh, as it's only a matter of light exposure to change the plant from the vegetative to the flowering state. So here you can see on this picture, um, absolutely beautiful flourishing examples of uh, cannabis sativa subspecies sativa, uh, quietly known as hemp, uh, growing in a, a cultivation site uh, here in New South Wales. So I stand about 179 centimetres tall, uh, making these beauties in the vicinity of between 12 to 13 feet, with another four to five weeks of growth to go, where it could actually put on another foot or two. So most indica and Afghan varietals, um, such as the sativa, uh, are much more smaller uh, and a little bit more robust and bushy uh, than these, uh, which only get around to about uh, three to six feet in height. Now, whilst my talk will be focusing mostly on the medicinal qualities um, of, of cannabis, um, not to be overlooked is that obviously we've got a long history of, of use, particularly with seed and the fibre, of at least 20,000 years. And this has been uh, proven recently in carbon dating. So the seeds of cannabis are rich in a nutritious oil, very uh, high in omega-3 and omega-6. And this is uh, interesting considering that uh, hemp seed foods uh, have uh, been passed recently and we're one of the last countries in the world to actually allow it. So this is going to be start coming out soon at the end of this year. So an excellent source of dietary protein, uh, particularly for vegetarians and vegans. Now the soft, highly durable bast fibre that you can see there on the right in figure 16 uh, comes from the stalk. We've used this for thousands of years to make paper and rope and clothing. Um, and also interestingly what we're seeing now is um, its use in hempcrete and building, where it's actually uh, uh, used to make bricks that are very, very thermally efficient. So what's really encouraging about this is that both with hemp and medicinal cannabis, we have an industry that is ready to go that could actually sustain thousands of jobs, really assist our farmers, um, and we're literally placed in one of the best places in the world to grow it. Um, so it's, it's encouraging, hopefully, that the uh, government will start supporting this a little bit more. All right, so that's all the fun stuff. Um, we're going to start getting into a little chemistry now, so um, I apologize in advance. But whilst um, you're having a look at that beautiful flower up there, 
Um, one thing that's interesting to think about is that of the 240,000 species of flowering plants that we have on this planet, and this is just me being an ethnopharmacologist at the moment, we've only studied about 10,000 for medicinal virtue uh, in a great, a great amount of detail. So I'd really like you to just uh, think about how many other treatments and cures that could be sitting out there right now. But what we're going to do now is start looking at the phytochemistry uh, and uh, how that interacts with the endocannabinoid system, the endocannabinoid receptors, those being the CB1 and CB2 receptors. And we'll also look at uh, some uh, compounds like the terpenes that work via different mechanisms of action. So um, delta 9 THC, which you can see up there, many of you would probably be familiar with. Um, but also cannabidiol uh, is getting a lot more uh, media attention, particularly down the bottom. Uh, that is uh, largely for its anticonvulsant uh, activity. And recent study, uh, um, Ingrid Sheffer, um, the professor that you saw at the start of the talk, a uh, little bit conservative. She's now published in, I believe, I think it was the New England Journal, um, uh, showing some of the results of that study, uh, which have been quite encouraging. So uh, she's definitely uh, starting to come around. All right, so you guys ready? Let's go through this diagram. I actually just put this up so I can see the looks on your faces, and I'm very happy. <laughs> Very happy to report that it looks exactly the same as my uh, third year pharmacognosy students, so that's good to see. Now look, things are going to get a little bit more painful, um, but I'll promise I'll make this as pain-free as possible. Um, so let's try something that looks a little bit less like the love child of a chemistry textbook and a street map of Sydney. There we go, that's much better. So for our purposes, this is far more manageable. Now cannabinoids are a class of what we call terpenophenolic compounds that occur in the cannabis plant. So you can see why they're called terpenophenolic on this diagram. As in the top right-hand corner, you've got your uh, alevitolic acid representing the phenolic moiety. And in the uh, right, of course, we've got geronyl pyrophosphate, which represents the terpene moiety. Now, these two come together um, to form cannabigerolic acid, or CBGA. Now, this is the precursor for all other major cannabinoid uh, acids that form in the plant. Now, when it's acid form, which is largely carboxylated, which I've highlighted in blue up there for you. Um, so if you go skipping through a cannabis plantation, picking flowers and eating them, the cannabinoids exist in an acid form and you're not gonna get high from it because not only will it not bind with the CB1 receptor, um, it will not cross the blood-brain barrier in that more polar form. So far, there've been over 144 different cannabinoids um, that have been classified. Uh, but this is largely dependent on the strain of cannabis being tested as they all demonstrate unique cannabinoid profiles. And many different variables such as things like uh, soil pH, water supply, sunlight exposure can actually change the way that those cannabinoids are present within the plant. So in the fresh plant, uh, it's these acid forms that exist as seen in the rectangle at the top of the slide and not their end product which we predominantly want to use as medicine such as Delta 9 THC or CBD. So once we dry and cure the plant material or expose it to heat, such as in smoking or baking or vaporizing, those carboxyl groups, which you can see highlighted in blue again, vibrate at a very, very high frequency and they snap off and they basically release carbon dioxide. And this now uh, is a decarboxylated product. You might, might have heard this term before. And the new decarboxylated product can actually form uh, to the various receptors and other receptor types. So here we see down the bottom, uh, this conversion or decarboxylation process, changing the non-psychoactive tetrahydrocannabinolic acid, or THCA, into the psychoactive delta-9-THC. But the same mechanism is, uh, exists also for other acid forms, such as cannabidiolic acid being converted into CBD for epilepsy. Now, THC uh, binds with relatively high affinity to both your CB1 and CB2 receptors in the central nervous system, very similar to our own endogenously produced anandamide. Now, this constituent is associated with the feeling of psychoactivity if given in high isolated doses, um, and can also cause dysphoria or potential paranoia and anxiety in certain individuals. Now, pharmacologically, THC is a very well-described analgesic in the management of pain related to cancer, muscle spasm, migraine, phantom limb pain, spinal cord injury, damaged nerves, and has even been used in post-surgery recovery for pain. So it's been shown benefit in assisting with muscle spasticity associated with multiple sclerosis, uh, and also uh, for cancer and AIDS patients as an appetite-promoting agent. Uh, less well-known evidence uh, that's been discussed uh, is also for its use in glaucoma, in lowering intraocular pressure, 
and uh, in, uh, associated recently with a new uh, study that was published in Nature uh, just uh, last year, I believe it was, uh, showing uh, effect with Alzheimer's disease. Now CBD, on the other hand, as you can see on the right, uh, is non, well, technically classified as a non-psychoactive cannabinoid, doesn't really make you stoned, um, and it opposes the dysphoric effects of THC, which is why generally it's of benefit to ensure that the two constituents occur together in some type of ratio, one-to-one one or one-to-four, um, to try and stop and minimize that dysphoria. Now, unlike THC, CBD has a very low affinity uh, to binding to CB1 and CB2 receptors, but rather works via different mechanisms of action, such as being an agonist for serotonin, 5-HT1A. Um, and also may explain why it exhibits antidepressant and significant anxiolytic activity. Due to B, uh, CBD's antioxidant, anti-inflammatory and neuroprotective action, it holds a great deal of interest in the treatment of seizures, epilepsy, um, Parkinson's and Huntington's disease, multiple sclerosis and also Alzheimer's. So I'm sh as I'm sure you've noticed, the fact that some of these pharmacological actions um, are shared between the two um, is something that we're going to look at in a minute called the entourage effect. And this is um, just two of the over 144 cannabinoids uh, that is present in the plant. So worthy of note also are some of the minor cannabinoids, uh, particularly delta-8 tetrahydrocannabinol, which exhibits uh, less psychoactivity than its delta-9 cousin, but expresses many of the same useful uh, therapeutic activities. Tetrahydrocannabinovarin, so which is your THCV, exhibits uh, anticonvulsant activity, similar to T uh, CBD, and cannabidovarin, um, and is also of interest in improving glucose tolerance uh, in type 2 diabetes. New studies being done with that over in the US at the moment. So cannabinol and cannabigerol, as you can see, share uh, the ability to decrease uh, proliferation of keratinocytes, and are also being investigated further for its effect in psoriasis. Now, with a large amount of these actions that have been demonstrated, we do need to sit there and be honest and say that a lot of this was only in animal models or in in vitro models. So it really does highlight how much more research needs to be uh, conducted on this plant and also how there's a lot more to this plant than just THC and CBD. Now, chemically, cannabinoids are highly lipophilic. Uh, they cross cell membranes very easily. So when smoked or vaporized, they cross the blood-brain barrier uh, incredibly quickly, within 30 to 90 seconds. Uh, so have a very rapid onset of action. However, when they're ingested uh, or orally, they're metabolized by the liver. Now, THC gets metabolized into a compound called 11-hydroxy-THC, which is far more therapeutically potent uh, and also has a much longer duration of action um, than smoking. So here you can see how not only selecting an appropriate cannabis uh, cultivar or ratios are important, but uh, selecting the right dosage form so that you don't end up like the grandmother in, in uh, Colorado uh, that was uh, complaining of eating her son's uh, brownie um, and seeing purple elephants um, uh, everywhere. So it's, it's something that they are having problems with over in the States. Now here's just a little infographic, and for any of you that want a copy of my slides today, uh, please just send me an email um, uh, to the uh, uh, address that I put up earlier. I'm quite happy to share them with you. Um, so this is just showing you the list of some of the uh, better studied uh, cannabinoids. Uh, so this is only about 10 of them. So um, we're going to now look at a completely different phytochemical class uh, known as the terpenes. So as I'm sure you remember, the terpene class uh, are also found within the glandular trichomes of the cannabis plant. And it's this phytochemical class that largely contributes uh, to the unique tastes and smells associated with the cannabis strain. This is what the dogs are, are sniffing. They can't sniff THC and, and CBD. They pick up on the terpenes. So it's a very, very un they're very unique compounds, but there are no uh, unique compounds uh, that are terpene. Uh, terpene uh, that are found just within cannabis. These are the same compounds that we'll find in other plants around the world. But what you can see, such as limonene up the top there, responsible for the same smell in lemon and other citrus species. So what you might not know though is that it packs quite a therapeutic punch, um, being a very good anxiolytic and also having uh, mild antidepressant activity. So this has been shown in um, also some evidence to show benefit in gastroesophageal reflux disease. Whereas beta-mercine, the one we see in the middle, this is a monoterpene that exhibits quite substantial muscle relaxant activity, sedative, anti-inflammatory, and analgesic action, which as you know are obviously those shared by CBD and THC. Now at concentrations of just over 0.5%, beta-mercine is associated with the well-known couch lock phenomena where you're asking someone to pick up the uh, television remote. 
So all of, all of you, I'm sure, have also come across uh, this clean scent of uh, pine needles. This is largely because of alpha-pinene. And this monoterpene exhibits quite strong anti-inflammatory and bronchodilatory activity, um, which, as you guessed it, of course, also uh, are the same types of actions that we've seen shared by many of the cannabinoids. So many other cannabinoids exist. In this infographic, there are just a few more that have been touched on. There's over 200 that have been identified in cannabis alone. But worthy of note also is linalool, uh, as an example there down in the uh, bottom left corner. Um, so this is also seen in lavender. gives it that calming uh, the smell, very useful for anxiety. And in 1995, actually, was shown to have anticonvulsant activities. So as you can see, there exists a great deal of um, pharmacological knowledge across uh, just these two phytochemical classes. But interestingly, there's over 700 different phytochemicals that have been characterized across all of the different cannabis strains. So the diversity of pharmacological actions and potential benefit for many different health uh, concerns is easy to see. Now, not to talk too much about it, but there's just a, a small example of some of the other phytochemical classes. Worthy of note, particularly, are the flavonoids, which have quite a widespread anti-inflammatory activity. So not going to bore you with too much detail, but basically just wanting to show you that uh, specific plants can be grown to express and uh, show uh, different phytochemical classes and, and ratios. And this is one of the strengths, I feel, uh, for cannabis uh, as a medicine uh, moving into the future. Now, as we said, dosage forms are pretty important as well, and, and cannabinoids and other pharmacologically active phytochemicals, like the terpenes, um, as we said, are quite lipophilic, so the dosage form is incredibly important. So this can determine the difference between treatment failure and amelioration of symptoms. So also other factors such as the duration of effect and potency. So there, as you can see, is a list of all of the commonly encountered dosage forms, looking at vaporizing and juicing, all the way through to capsules and the rather messy suppositories. But one thing that's important to note, as I said, was that things like the orally ingested products that are there, much like the oils that many patients take, will undergo this biotransformation in the liver to a much stronger form, but will take about 30 to 90 minutes to take full effect. Um, will provide up to six to eight hours of duration, whereas smoking or vaping a similar type of uh, com uh, uh, complex mixture will have quicker onset uh, but shorter duration of effect. So this is great because the multiple dosage forms can be used to manage particularly pain and symptom expression, leaving the ability to individually uh, uh, individualize treatment and titrate dose according to the individual. So the correct dosage form is an integral component of ensuring effective medicinal cannabis strategy, uh, as has been uh, suggested by physicians I've spoken to in Canada, the United States, and Israel. So here are some of the commonly known drug interactions uh, that clinicians and nurses, of course, need to be careful of and need to be taken seriously uh, for drugs that are metabolized by these pathways, uh, as it could, of course, increase serum levels and slow down elimination of drugs. So this is particularly a problem when you consider drugs of narrow therapeutic index. So always a good idea to check these uh, out if your patients are taking uh, or, or are involved with polypharmacy. So how did we get here now, um, fighting for reintroduction of a herbal medicine with thousands of years of therapeutic application? Well, here's one of the men that's responsible for it. In perhaps one of the greatest examples of propaganda engineering in recent history, Harry Anslinger is largely credited for a lot of the lies and falsehoods for which cannabis is still tarred to this day. Hand-selecting the, the best of bigotry, racism, and religious fear. Oops, there he is. Um, he basically, in the strokes of pens and testimonies to Congress, he single-handedly abolished and made illegal the use of a plant that had been serving us for millennia. So it's said that he bullied and coerced many uh, in the medical profession to support his claims, with a pharmacognosis, uh, oh, sorry, pharmacologist, Dr. James Munch, expert witness for Anslinger, actually testifying under oath in court, and I quote, after two puffs on a marijuana cigarette, I was turned into a bat. I mean, it seems legit to me, but I must admit, I'd love to get my hands on to uh, analyze what he was actually smoking. So having read through this slide, I'm sure you'll agree, is truly horrifying. I mean, who in their right mind would ever call jazz or swing satanic music, for one? Now, I don't know about you, but speaking for myself, I've partaken in far more acts of violence under the influence of alcohol than any other drug. 
In fact, I dare say the limits of violence that many have experienced under the influence of cannabis extend largely to smashing a whole pizza and then destroying half a tub of Sara Lee ice cream whilst watching a David Attenborough documentary series. So let's now have a brief look at the wonders that Anslinger released into the general public during his long tenure. They would be hilarious uh, if they weren't so effective. Now, for a 1930s Christian and uh, Catholic majority uh, in the US, such posters immediately struck terror uh, into the hearts of parents everywhere. I particularly like the reference to it being used as a pill on the right uh, and lots of references to hell, the devil, and sin. For any God-fearing American, this was basically a mandate from on high, as to use cannabis would therefore cast doubts on one's faith. This was step one in a very effective fear-driven campaign to control the masses. And considering that at the time, all of, the, of all the representative political assembly, only one was a noted atheist, the rest being largely conservative Christians and Catholics, it was a, a way to control policy as well. But this is just the start. Where things get really interesting uh, is coming up now. So these are perhaps my favorites from the collection of Anslinger's uh, fantasy. On the right here, we can see some positive reinforcement of the devil and religious overtones, so it's at least good to see some continuity in the message. Um, I also enjoy the term sex orgies. Now, I know I don't get out much these days, but I must admit I'm at a loss to decipher what other types of orgies exist, when you consider the definition of the word at least. And welcome my esteemed audience to please enlighten me over tea later, uh, if, in case I was overlooking something. But this next one, as we see on the left, is just pure gold. After all this time learning about cannabis, here we are educated that it's actually, we use it via a needle. I was shocked to learn that millions worldwide had been uh, doing it wrong all this time, and I'm sure it has nothing to do with trying to connect its use to more harmful illicit drugs like heroin. So this, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, is why such prejudice still exists for this herbal medicine and still exists in the training programs of medical professionals to this day. Like I said before, it would be humorous uh, if it wasn't so successful. So let's now have a look at some of the concerns that are raised by many patients, carers, medical professionals. They're very valid, uh, and particularly politicians uh, around this space. We're going to start out looking at that cannabis lowers IQ. So it has been long touted that cannabis use reduces human IQ because it kills neurons. Now, whilst consumption of certain varieties of cannabis that are bred to be high in tetrahydrocannabinol may indeed cause a decreased function in short-term memory, these changes are not considered permanent and resolve with cessation. So to any students in attendance, uh, obviously consider this a warning for uh, prior exam preparation. But more interestingly is that compounds within cannabis have actually been found to be neuroprotective. In vitro and animal studies are demonstrating that certain cannabinoids in cannabis, such as CBD, may reduce damage to the brain caused by lack of uh, blood flow or oxygen supply, and also assist in preventing the neurological degeneration seen in the conditions such as multiple sclerosis and Alzheimer's disease. Whilst more research certainly needs to be conducted in human trials, these preliminary results are certainly encouraging. And for any of you that know the significance of twin studies, you'll enjoy this article. So recently, a review of two longitudinal twin studies conducted by Jackson and colleagues that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Science in 2016 found that cannabis using twins failed to show significantly greater IQ decline relative to their abstinent siblings, which is therefore suggestive that observed declines in IQ are more attributable to familial or other factors. Here's another one that I get asked quite a bit. Um, all cannabis, does it get you high? Now, compounds, of course, like uh, tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, are generally the ones that are attributed with the psychoactive effect of making you feel high or stoned. Now, narrow-leaf drug varieties and others that are richer in CBD and lower in THC uh, generally don't cause this feeling, which is why many people prefer to use non-psychoactive strains during the day in trying to help manage their condition, and then take the stronger THC-rich strains for nighttime use, helping them sleep and deal with pain. So this level of individualization and phytochemical selectivity in specific cannabis uh, cultivars is one of the greatest strengths, I believe, as cannabis as a medicine. So does this mean that THC is potentially a negative constituent, then I hear you ask, and the answer is certainly not. If I hear one more person or politician suggest that CBD is medicinal cannabis and THC-rich strains are recreational only, I may stroke out. So THC is the main constituent uh, that's involved in pain relief, sedative and muscle relaxant activities. 
uh, within cannabis. And in the interest of fairness, perspective, and of course comparing apples with apples, let's not forget that ca uh, pharmaceutical drugs like the opiates and benzo classes don't exactly leave you for feeling normal either. What about the topic of cannabis being a drug of dependence? Uh, many of you sitting through your training, I'm sure, have heard this, uh, uh, causing dependence and being highly addictive. So this is obviously a very important one and one that uh, medical professionals and politicians are very concerned about. Now, whilst there is conflicting, conflicting evidence um, that I found across this topic in the scientific literature, after reviewing sample sizes to try and find something big enough, I found this study conducted by Anthony Warner and Kessler back in 94 that surveyed 8,000 people in the USA between the ages of 15 and 54 and assessed uh, drug use patterns uh, of dependence. Now, understand that these are only focusing on recreational use. But of particular interest, as you can see highlighted there, is that yes, cannabis can cause dependency. However, let's also look at things a little more closely. 24% of the study respondents with a history of dependence, which is one in four, reported being dependent to tobacco, whilst one in seven, um, or 14%, reported alcohol um, as uh, being dependent, classified by the DSM. Now, worthy of note here is that, uh, seeing those previous statistics, that only 4% reported dependence to cannabis, which is six times less than that of tobacco. Now, let's remember that both tobacco and alcohol are legally obtainable uh, to those that meet age requirements and are not illicit substances. Now, getting back on topic, many other factors, of course, need to be considered here, such as individual variability of the patient and why the cannabis was being utilised. For example, I think it's fair to say that if someone is suffering from chronic intractable pain that's non-responsive to medical pharmaceutical treatment, it's reasonable to assume that they would be dependent on cannabis for pain-relieving activity and would take it regularly on a daily basis. We also need to consider that as an illicit substance, cannabis is also one of the cheapest to obtain in comparison to uh, products like cocaine and heroin. Now in this study, which was conducted in the UK, you can clearly see that cannabis is very low down on the dependency list. Coffee, which is not placed on the scale, but comes in at 0.9, which is higher than cannabis at 0.8. Yet the Green Queen's legal but deadly cousins, alcohol and tobacco, are both far higher up the scale of dependence. I always find it funny how these statistics are conveniently overlooked by certain government scientific committees. Now this now leads us to an important flow-on question. Does cannabis cause people to go on to use harder drugs? And the evidence here is also quite compelling. Now the idea of cannabis being a gateway drug um, is not new, and not surprisingly there's a great deal of conflicting evidence in the scientific literature. Firstly, we need to consider that as cannabis is obtained from the black market due to its current illegality, it does stand to reason that other illicit drugs of a harder nature are also obtained from similar sources. This simple association is quite difficult to remove as a confounding variable in study results. Now in California, however, a state that has legalized medicinal cannabis dispensaries, patients can access just medicinal cannabis with a card from their authorized healthcare provider. A study conducted in California in 2008 on 350 registered medicinal cannabis users found that cannabis may actually serve as an exit drug and not a uh, gateway drug at all. So let's have a look at some figures. 40% of the respondents in this survey reported using cannabis as a substitute for alcohol, which we already know has a higher dependency rate. 26% used it as a substitute for other illicit drugs, and 66% used it as a substitution for prescription medications. Further findings also suggest that 65% of patients use medicinal cannabis due to the propensity for less side effects, 34% due to less withdrawal effects, and 57% felt that it provided better symptom management of their specific medical condition. Now, in the interest of balance, this was only a small study, but it does pro uh, pro propose at least a counter-argument against the traditional viewpoint. And whilst on this topic, new evidence has been shown that medicinal cannabis use is associated with a decrease in pharmaceutical opioid deaths. The CDC, or Centers for Disease Control in the United States, posted that in 2010, over 16,000 people died from the pharmaceutical opioid analgesics prescribed, which equates to roughly 45 people per day, and that opioid overdoses have quadrupled from the year 2000 to 2014. Now, in Australia, the rise of addiction to prescription opiates has been particularly noteworthy and devastating. From 2002 to 2009, the amount of oxycodone prescribed in Australia increased by 180%. Furthermore, in the year 1990s, or in the 90s, uh, hospitalizations due to opioid poisoning, which were predominantly related to heroin before, uh, but by 2008, prescription opioids accounted for 80% of all opioid-related hospitalizations. 
I also read an interesting paper just uh, two months ago uh, by Mahuri and colleagues uh, published in 2013 with data that was looked at from 2002 to 2012, showing that the incidence of heroin initiation was 19 times higher among those who reported prior non-medical opioid pain reliever use um, than those that did not. Whereas a study by Lankenau in 2012 suggests that young urban injection drug users, which were interviewed between the years 2008 and 2009, found that 86% of them had used opioid pain relievers non-medically prior to using heroin. So, as we can see, an interesting trend uh, is starting to be seen. But what about some uni uniquely Australian statistics? Here you can see up the top some numbers of overall deaths from pharmaceuticals illegal drugs and alcohol from the years 2009 to 2015. And as you can see, an alarming upward trend is easy to see. The second table below it shows statistics of overdose deaths for just the opioids and benzodiazepine classes. So it's been uh, easy to see that thousands of Australians have overdosed on prescription medications. And the really concerning thing that is, that's just Victorian statistics. So in this regard, cannabis is coming to the rescue based on new evidence over just the last two years. So in this paper uh, published by Barkhuber and colleagues, is that the one I think it is? It is the one, good. Um, so Barkhuber and co colleagues published this in JAMA Internal Medicine, uh, Journal of the American uh, Medical Association in 2014. So it clearly demonstrated that state medicinal cannabis laws in the USA were associated with significantly lower state-level opioid overdose mortality rates, which lowered in year one by 20% and strengthened to 33% after six years, with a mean average of about 248 now, such evidence supports the findings presented in the Ryman statistics previously presented and also supports that cannabis may well be an exit drug. Now, in this paper by Lucas, which was in Harm Reduction Journal, released just last month, also confirms what's known as the substitution effect and suggests that there is a growing body of evidence to support the use of cannabis uh, as an adjunct uh, for, uh, sub or substitute for opioids, particularly when you consider that in the USA, 45 people a, d uh, a day die from this. And the Australian Medical Association has declared this both a major public health uh, focus in 2015 and has now come out again in 2017. Now, the Therapeutic Goods Administration argues that cannabis is not a first choice medicine. Um, but I would suggest that such evidence is suggestive that the TGA should potentially uh, rethink their strategy. Now, furthermore, and perhaps more interestingly, is that medicinal cannabis may also show huge cost savings to the healthcare system. In this study by Bradford and Bradford in 2016, it was shown that between 2010 and 2013, US states that actually use medicinal use of, uh, or medicinal cannabis were shown to have a 12% lower rate of pain relief prescriptions in the US Medicaid patients that were over 65 years of age, and that 8 to 13% lower rates were noticeable um, for anxiety, depression, nausea, psychosis, and uh, sleep disorders. So national overall reductions in the Medicare program uh, when states implemented medicinal cannabis laws were estimated to be around 165 million US. But I'll, talk, I'll let um, uh, Simon uh, talk more about the impacts that this could have uh, in Australia, which as we could see, uh, could be you know, uh, a pipeline for savings to our already uh, burdened healthcare system. Now this is perhaps one of the most uh, commonly asked questions uh, that I get from politicians, medicos, patients, um, and carers. So as you guys know, I'm sure, psychosis can be both a symptom by itself or a feature of mental illness, characterized by being unable to distinguish what is real or losing contact with reality. Now the causes for psych psychosis are not fully understood, uh, but involve obviously a complex interplay of individual genetics, physical, environmental, and psychological factors. Cannabis is perhaps of more concern in heavy use uh, or with younger people that are still developing neurologically. Now there's been a large amount of articles proposing that cannabis can cause uh, psychosis or schizophrenia. And I don't like the term cause, but it certainly is a risk factor. Um, however, a review article published in 2016 by Sir and Hart, it was proposed that the evidence reviewed from previous studies suggests that cannabis does not in itself cause a psychosis disorder. Rather, the evidence led the researchers to conclude that both early use and heavy use of cannabis are more likely in individuals with a vulnerability to psychosis. So more research obviously needs to be conducted in this area to fully understand uh, the relationship. 
Uh, and we also have to consider the quality uh, or the variety of the cannabis that's being used, which until only very recently has been plants bred to be really only specifically high in tetrahydrocannabinol. So we also need to consider the dose being taken and other pre-existing psychological or physical disease um, that may be present within the patient. Now, furthermore, in this United Kingdom study, uh, this was done by Hickman and colleagues, it was estimated that to prevent one case of schizophrenia, approximately 2,000 young men, uh, I think it was between the ages of 20 and 24, would need to actually stop using cannabis uh, to stop uh, one, one case. So that's the numbers needed to prevent um, model. But perhaps more importantly is what we see here, is that despite cannabis use increasing in many jurisdictions around the world at an ever-increasing rate since the 1960s, statistics on schizophrenia prevalence have been stable at 1% and are certainly not growing at a rate proportional to increased uptake and availability. Now, whilst the topic may be uh, worthy, and I think it is, of further scientific study, when leading world experts like Professor Emeritus Dr. Grinspoon from a little-known place called Harvard University and Professor Nutt, who's a leading uh, UK neuropsychopharmacologist, suggests that the evidence is not compelling, I wonder if maybe we could spend that valuable research money uh, elsewhere. Now, what about cannabis use being harmful? So, it's obviously difficult to uh, find accurate statistics about actual deaths caused by cannabis alone in Australian data sets, because Lord knows I've tried. And most data sets include multiple drugs that may have contributed to harm, such as alcohol and other illicit substances. So as these are not separated out, we don't get an actual accurate picture of risk, but we can see that based on changes to mental perception uh, and also considering um, that such statistics have only been based on social or recreational use, we still need to uh, understand that there is increased risk of harm. But let's now bring some statistics in that we know very well for comparative purposes. Data obtained from the Australian government's quit line suggests that more than 50 Australians die each day from a tobacco-related death. Um, that's one every 28 minutes. In 1998 alone, over 19,000 deaths were attributed to tobacco, and in 95, almost 3.2 million Australians were identified as being at risk of developing chronic health conditions because of smoking, which equated, I think at the time, to about 23% of the adult population. Now, the impact not only on individual health, but also as a burden on our healthcare system can't be overlooked. And the statistics for alcohol aren't uh, great either. It's quite sobering. Uh, in fact, in the document uh, produced called Alcohol's Burden of Disease in Australia, it highlighted that in 2010, there were 5,500 deaths attributed to alcohol, uh, with an additional 157,000 hospitalizations in that same year, people that I'm sure many of you uh, have attended to. So when you now consider this latter cost not only in life and suffering, uh, but also as a cost to the healthcare system, uh, it really is quite staggering. So can cannabis cause potential harm? Yes, the answer is of course yes, it can. But comparing currently available statistics of, of cannabis risk of causing harm to those of the statistics that we look at for its legal cousins in alcohol and tobacco, I fall back on the rather vulgar description of comparing, it to, uh, uh, comparing a fart to a cyclone. And just how many Australians died of cannabis overdose, I hear you ask, in 2012? Uh, on this graph, of course, you can see uh, from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Now, just how toxic is cannabis? Because that's obviously important for this uh, debate to bring a little toxicology in. So to determine toxicity, we use the lethal dose 50, the LD50, which is defined as the dose required to kill half the members of a population after a predetermined time frame. Now, essentially, the lower the number, um, the increased toxicity. So this being said, what I want you to understand here is that CBD and THC are in their purified forms. This is obviously not how this would appear uh, in the phytochemical profile of a whole plant, and therefore not an accurate representation of how dangerous cannabis is, although I'm sure you'll appreciate the coffee you had this morning uh, from pure caffeine is actually uh, more toxic. Now on this slide, uh, which was derived from US statistics, you can see the therapeutic ratio to effective dose over lethal dose, uh, and cannabis has been rated at one to greater than 20,000. Now I'll, I'll elaborate a little bit more on this uh, on the next slide. 
So just how much whole plant cannabis would be required to cause death? I haven't, I ha there's a picture coming, uh, but I'll, I'll get through my, my preamble first. So I dug through a lot of the literature to find out uh, how much cannabis would be needed to cause death. Centers of disease control in the USA have not recorded any deaths attributable pu uh, purely to cannabis in their data sets. Um, and the National Cancer Institute suggests that because there are no cannabinoid receptors in the brainstem, which is where respiration uh, is controlled, lethal overdose from um, uh, cannabis is incredibly unlikely. However, I did find a 1988 Department of Justice and Drug Enforcement Agency brief written by Judge Francis L. Young after expert consultation on the matter, which stated, and I quote, in layman terms, this means that in order to induce death, a marijuana smoker would have to consume 20 to 40,000 times as much marijuana as contained in one marijuana cigarette. So NIDA supplied cigarettes weigh approximately 0.9 grams. A smoker would then theoretically have to consume nearly 1,500 pounds of cannabis within about 15 minutes to induce a lethal response. Now, whilst I'm uncertain of the scientific validity of such a statement, it was one of the only ones I could find, but I'll let you show what that represents. So all I can say is your time starts now and best of luck. Thank you. Now understand, however, that I'm certainly not proposing that cannabis is a panacea uh, or is without harmful effects. And this is uh, uh, reflecting that. Now cannabis hyperemesis syndrome is a significantly documented uh, adverse reaction characterized by abdominal pain, cyclic nausea and vomiting, which is odd because it's used to treat that, um, male predominance, history or, of regular or heavy cannabis use, resolution of symptoms upon cessation, and also compulsive hot showers or bars that pr provide relief from symptoms. Now, the underlying pathophysiology behind uh, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome is still unclear, as I said, because um, we've believed up until this time that various compounds have actually had an antiemetic effect. Now, since there's an inability of the major studies to divide between medicinal use and recreational use, quality control issues relating to the uh, production of the plant need to be considered as a potential causation. With the recent studies by laboratories in the United States showing that certain antifungal agents, such as microbutanol, which sprayed upon the cannabis, and not only cannabis, but also grape and almond crops, it's actually converted to hydrogen cyanide when it's combusted or inhaled an alarming concern in relation to unregulated cannabis cultivation and showing the need for simple and robust organic growing methods for the establishing of a medicinal cannabis industry in Australia. Now other side effects of course are, can include things like tachycardia, hypertension and short-term effects on cognition including things like um, sense of time, sensory perception, attention span, verbal fluency, problem solving, psychomotor control and reaction time. Now, in some instances and with large doses, hallucination, anxiety, and dysphoria can also be noted in certain individuals, particularly in high THC-containing strains where CBD is not present to antagonize that dysphoric effect of the THC. And before we all run off uh, to enjoy our morning tea, I just wanted to uh, give you a quote to reflect upon. With the recent war on terrorism and obviously the earlier war on drugs coming from Richard Nixon, both being thus far notable failures, one has to wonder if the classic Greek tragedian Aeschylus wasn't onto something some 500 years ago before the birth of Christ. In some things, it seems humanity has not changed a great deal in over two and a half millennia. So thank you for keeping me company on this walk through some of the facts and uh, fiction around medicinal cannabis, and uh, thank you also for your kind attention.